0: Glory be to the Father.
1: We have entered now the beginning of the liturgical year according to the Byzantine liturgical calendar, not the civil calendar, although it used to be the civil calendar in the Byzantine Empire. It is now just the liturgical calendar in the Byzantine church, and it begins on September 1st, so we're just getting into it a few days into it. The very first feast day we have in the calendar, very appropriately, is the feast of the birth of the Mother of God, because that's what gets it all started. That's how Christ came into the world through her, so she had to come into the world first. God took on human form and was like us in every way except sin. So, he was born from a woman. He gets his human nature from her. That's why in the icons of the Virgin Mary, in the Byzantine icons, the outer robe that she wears, the predominant one that you see in a Byzantine icon, is the color of like an earthly red. It can be various forms of red, but it's basically a reddish tone symbolic of like clay like the like a redness of the earth it is from there that christ gets his humanity because he was of course god and therefore divine so we begin with a marvelous feast day of the nativity mother of god but the virgin mary is seen in the church as a symbol of the church and the church building itself is significant because the church building itself is often seen as the Presence of Christ it has a number of metaphors, the presence of Christ, body of Christ, but also symbolic of the Virgin Mary, because she herself was a living temple. and when we go to church, especially in the Eucharist liturgy, we were actually going to a temple, because the temple is where God dwells, and it's where a sacrifice is offered. So the Virgin Mary, because she had God dwelling within her womb, is a mystical tabernacle or temple. And so is the church that we worship in. And everything about that temple, that church, because it represents and in fact does make present on earth the very body of Christ mystically and also is symbolic of the Virgin Mary, because of that, the church is very important in every aspect of it, its art, its architecture. Obviously, something that represents the body of Christ on earth God, the divine God who became incarnate is present in a particular way in the temple, in the church. And something that symbolizes the Virgin Mary, who herself was a temple, as we've been saying, has to be done a certain way. It has to be done, decorated, designed with its art, architecture, appointments, everything has to be done to a specific and glorious way. And this way is very ancient, and this way is seen in many ancient Byzantine churches. This is why preserving these churches is so significant to our faith, because we get to see, we get a standard, a blueprint of how churches should look. It's not just what any architect dreams of. The liturgy and God himself, the saints, the Virgin Mary, are all beyond us. So when we use our gifts of art, architecture, or music, and so on, we use it in a way that's kind of deferential. In other words, we defer to the standards that have been set, because what we're doing is not our own thing. The church is not a platform for us to become a famous artist or famous musician, although that happens in a sense by default, like Michelangelo. But it is a place in which we use our abilities for the glory of God, that God in his glory takes front stage. This is why iconographers generally don't sign their icons. Basically, you shouldn't know who painted the icons in a church. And that's pretty much the case most of the time because our gifts, no matter how great, are not to be expressed in a way that is purely individual. In other words, this is my creation, my style. I put my mark on the design of this church or the design of an icon and so on. Yes, there is certainly going to be a personal aspect to it, But that personal aspect has to take a second seat behind the standard. And there is a standard. And there's freedom within the standard. But there's a basic standard about how churches, especially Eastern churches, should look, should be designed architecturally. The wedding, the integration, of the art, the architecture, the ritual, the gesture, the prayer, all going together, using the five senses. It's all magnificently integrated. And a couple of examples that are supreme examples of this integration of the magnificence of Byzantine art and church design are found in the country of what is today Turkey, because that was the center of the Byzantine Empire from the town called Byzantium, later changed to Constantinople under the Emperor Constantine when he moved the seat of his Roman Empire to Byzantium and renamed it because he was so impressed with that city. It still is a very impressive city today, only well, now it's called Istanbul, largely Muslim. But I have to, with great regret, announce that yet another magnificent church there in Turkey, a magnificent example of Byzantine art and architecture, has now recently been reverted back into a mosque, This happened uh, recently with Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom, the great mother church of all Christianity, actually. It's been around since the 6th century, and there was even one built before that, earlier, on that same spot. But the Emperor Justinian came and built a magnificent church in the 6th century, which still stands to this day. It was overtaken by the Ottoman Turks, the Muslims, in 1423 AD, they claimed it as a mosque. Then later on in the 1900s, the leader of Turkey wanted to keep the peace and open up to the West, become a little more secularized. So, he declared this great church, now a mosque, as a museum. And that kept it open for visitors. But recently, the current leader of Turkey, leaning more towards radical Islam, has reclaimed the once great Christian church that was a mosque, then a museum, has reclaimed it as a mosque. And now most recently, he has done that to a church that I was hoping and praying would not happen. But it's the church that I would call the Byzantine church's answer to the Sistine Chapel. It is called the Korah Church or Kora Museum it has been called for in recent history, now called the Karia Jame. And this was a magnificent, but not a big edifice that was on the outside of the city of Constantinople, on the outskirts of the city proper, which today is Istanbul. And it was called Korak because that's what that means. It's a Greek word which means on the outskirts, kind of in the in the in the rural part, in the country. Now there's a wonderful three volume set about this wonderful church. This three volume set is called the Karia Jame, which is what the Turks call it, but we know it as also the Kora, later on, the Kora Museum. It was a Kora monastery. And this three volume set is edited by Paul A. Underwood. It's very, very, very informative, magnificent set to have if you're really interested in Byzantine art and architecture. In this book, Paul Underwood, the editor, says, Long considered the finest example of the last flowering of Byzantine art, the Korea Jame, before its conversion to a mosque after the Turkish conquest of Constantinople, was called the Church of the Monastery of the Korah. Although scholars had known its early 14th century treasures of mosaic art, while they were in deplorable state and only dimly visible, it was not until 1948 shortly after the mosque had been secularized, but the Byzantine Institute of the United States, with the sanction and friendly assistance of the Turkish Department of Antiquities and the Commission for the Preservation of Ancient Monuments, began the exacting work of cleaning and restoring. So, for the last nine years of this work, the director has been Paul Underwood, Professor of Byzantine Architecture in Archaeology, Harvard University, Dumbarton Oaks. So, we really are indebted to Paul Underwood for this wonderful three-volume set. However, as you heard, this was an example of magnificent Byzantine art, and I like to call it the Byzantine Church's answer to the Sistine Chapel. Now, the church existed as it is until the Komnenian dynasty, but then began to be used as a chapel, the Blashené Palace, when the latter, the Blashené Palace, became the center of political rule. This was in, in Turkey, and in the Byzantine Empire. The Korah Monastery stood in ruins toward the end of the 11th century and was restored by Maria Dukina, the mother-in-law of Alexius Conenus I. Now, this is in the years 1081 to 1118 AD, so we're a thousand years into Christianity. It was dedicated then to Christ the Savior, then it was demolished again and restored by the younger son of Alexius I, Isaac, who had a magnificent grave built for himself in the narthex section of the church. That mausoleum was brought to another monastery in Thrace later on. Now, the Koran Monastery was destroyed like all the other buildings of the city during the Latin invasion dating back to 1204 to 1261 AD. This was during the Fourth Crusade, which is a real sore point among Eastern Christians because that's when some Latin crusaders came in with some malintent, looked down their nose at the Eastern churches and basically ran them out of their own church and took them over and even destroyed some of their churches. We're going to talk more about this magnificent church that sadly has been reclaimed as a mosque, although it was not originally a mosque. It was a Christian monastery. We'll talk more about
0: that when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion and to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church. We need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright.
1: I'm Father Thomas Loya. I invite you to experience Lumen Christi Institute's September webinar series, Eastern Catholic Theology in Action. Learn about the distinct liturgy, theology, spirituality, and
0: discipline of the 23 Eastern churches in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. This webinar series begins Thursday, September 3rd at 7 p.m. and every Thursday thereafter in September and on Thursday, November 12th. Some of the lectures include an introduction to liturgical mystagogy, presented by Daniel Galazza, University of Regensburg, a theology of wonder, an introduction to the poetry of Ephraim the Syrian, presented by Andrew Hayes of the University of St. Thomas in Houston. These Eastern Catholic Theology in Action webinars are presented by the Lumen Christi Institute, along with the Beatrice Institute and sponsored by the Taper Life Institute. To register to access these webinars, visit LumenChristi.org. That's LumenChristi.org. This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and you are listening to Light of the East.
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Logan, your host. We're talking about a magnificent, what I call the Byzantine Church's answer to the Sistine Chapel, magnificent church that was turned into a mosque, then a museum, and now recently, sad to say, has become a mosque once again. Now, why am I saying sad to say? Why am I upset about this? Well, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, my background is in art. I'm a student and a practitioner of Byzantine art as well. So I have a certain field. I've been to this magnificent church, as well as Hagia Sophia, stood before this artwork in absolute awe, wondering who were these people that were this inspired to make this kind of art? Who were these geniuses? I mean, truly, it is just as awe-inspiring as the Sistine Chapel only in a smaller scale, and that is well known. But still, the quality is something that had to have been inspired by God. Trust me, I'm an artist. I know what I'm looking at. I can make this kind of evaluation of art. But also because this was a Byzantine church. It was a Byzantine monastery. It was taken as the spoils of war when the Ottoman Turks, the Muslims, came in and conquered Constantinople in the 15th century. They've been trying to take over Europe for centuries they have been repelled several times by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was a very Catholic empire, and they were repelled miraculously several times through the intercession of the Virgin Mary. We're not talking about people who are Muslim. Many of those people, many, many of them are very sincere, very devout. How I wish many Christians had their kind of devotion, and wouldn't it be wonderful to have that kind of devotion if those people converted to the Christian faith? they would certainly make a tremendous contribution because of their zeal. But Islam is, quite frankly, we would see it as a Christian heresy. It does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as God and as the Son of God. It does not acknowledge God as Trinity. So, there was a problem with it. And it was our church. It was taken from us. And now, once again, the access to it is limited for us because it's now a mosque. Whether they'll keep these churches open enough for the public or in a limited way, we don't know yet. But Islam does not use images other than just decorative, floral kind of images, designs, no, no images of persons like saints or angels in Christ and so on. And so when they take over what are Christian churches, they tend to whitewash over, eliminate, or at least cover over what is oftentimes magnificent artwork. And this is my concern right now about these two great churches, Hagia Sophia and the Korah Church, both in what is today Istanbul, originally Constantinople, and before that Byzantium. Two of the most magnificent examples of Byzantine art architecture on earth, and they're ancient. And it would just be so sad, so tragic to see that magnificence. Art and architecture inspired by God to the hands of devout, gifted Christians to see that destroyed or covered up. So yes, I am concerned and I need to say it. I would be remiss. I'm a Byzantine Christian, i a Byzantine Catholic, I'm an artist, I do Byzantine art. So I have all kinds of reasons to be concerned here and to make this statement. So we go back to the history of this Korah Museum or this monastery and again, we left off by saying that it was destroyed again by the Latin crusaders in the 13th century. That was a very, very unfortunate black mark on East-West Christian relations in terms of Christianity. The Fourth Crusade was Very, very condescending, very destructive of the Eastern churches, very disrespectful. And many of the Orthodox churches to this day will still refer to that wound, although we should be getting over it, but still they refer to it. Now, the Korah Monastery was rebuilt and redecorated with, with mosaics and frescoes by Theodorus Meduchidis after the Latin invasion. They call it the Latin invasion. The restoration dating back to 1303 to 1328 was the final one which gave the church its present look. Medikidus was one of the outstanding intellectuals of the so-called last Byzantine era between 1261 and 1453, which was the year of the Turkish conquest. He was expelled from duty during the reign of Andronicus II and spent the rest of his life as a simple monk in the Kora Monastery boy, that's a great way to be expelled. Spend your life in this magnificent monastery surrounded by the greatest Byzantine art in history in the world. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's quite an expulsion. It's quite an exile. <laughs> the building gained importance during the Turkish siege, and the famous icon of Virgin Mary, which was believed to protect the city and had been preserved in the church of Hojaditria, was carried to Korah because the building was close to the city walls. After the Turkish conquest, the church remained deserted for a time and was turned into a mosque by Bayezid II's Grand Vizier, Atik Ali Paska, in 1511. From then on, it came to be called the Koram Mosque. It became a museum in 1948. That was under, of course, Ataturk, the leader of Turkey at the time. And its frescoes were cleaned and restored by the American Byzantine Institute. Nothing is left from the Kora Monastery other than the church. The oldest part of the church built in the 11th and 12th centuries is composed of a single narthex and a central hall which were set on the foundations of an older building. Now, I highly recommend it if you go online because obviously that's very convenient today. Go online and look up Korah Museum, C-H-O-R-A, C-H-O-R-A. Or it's also called the Karia Jame, which is spelled K-A-R-I-Y-E. K-A-R-I-Y-E-D-J-A-M-I. D-J-A-M-I. Look it up through either name, and hopefully you'll get pictures and tours, sort of an online tour of the place. It's mosaics. You've seen many of them. The mosaics and frescoes reproduced in a lot of places. Oftentimes when they want to present and use Byzantine art, oftentimes it comes from this Korah, church. I'll keep calling it a church because that's originally what it was. And For me, it will always be that. Something doesn't become something else because someone steals it or conquers a people and takes it from them. I'm sorry. It should always be seen. It will always be seen to me as a magnificent Byzantine monastery, a holy place. In fact, I'll give you a little personal experience When I went to Istanbul to look at these magnificent Byzantine churches, ancient and beautiful, still standing today, we are not allowed to wear religious garb in Istanbul, in Turkey. That goes back to the rule of Ataturk because he wanted to keep the peace between the different factions of faiths that were warring against each other and also just to be open to the West and so on. So he kind of downplayed any overt religious zeal. So he said that everybody had to wear just secular clothes, even clerics. So I remember, I'll never forget this, is I'm, I'm all excited. I'm approaching the entrance of this magnificent church, the mother church of Christianity, certainly the mother church of my faith, the Byzantine Christianity. We're not in our collars, although we're all priests. And I remember, as soon as we walked in the door of what is considered to be a museum, Hagia Sophia the Museum, we spontaneously did the sign of the cross. We just knew and felt immediately, it took us back to the origins. We as priests, and our deep priesthood, and that mystical part of us that comes through the sacrament, that rose up in us, and we knew we were in our liturgical home, the womb of our liturgy and our church, our faith. And we just spontaneously did the sign of the cross as though we were coming in to one of our own churches. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget feeling it, never forget seeing it. And we didn't care, we didn't even think about whether we'd be reprimanded or arrested for showing an outward sign of faith or Christianity in that place, which is now a mosque again. We didn't care, it just overtook us. And if you ever go to that place, visit the Korah Monastery or Hagia Sophia, the Great Church of Holy Wisdom. Notice I keep calling them churches or monasteries. I think you'll be overcome as well. And you might very easily, spontaneously do as we did, do the sign of the cross and say a prayer and know that you are in a place whose holiness, centuries old, cannot be driven out of those places by anyone by any whitewashing or veils or curtains or conquests. That is the mystery of Byzantine art, architecture, and liturgy. Thanks for listening. I'm
0: Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. listeners to Catholic Radio, I think, benefit most, at least initially, from what I call remedial catechesis. What Catholic Radio does is it uh, becomes an echo chamber for the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. And what we're doing is teaching many things which uh, have been neglected over the last 40, 50 years. If you listen to Catholic Radio, you know what the Catholic Church teaches. Al Cresta thinks Catholic Radio is important. So
1: should you. Thank you for listening.